0: The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at StoneOakBible.com. We get to look at just three very short verses and uh, we got some work to do in them. Um, but I'm excited for it. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and grab them? Would you find your place with me in Romans? Romans chapter 4, and we're going to be in uh, verse, we're going to start with verse 13. So you can find your place with me there. And, and as you're finding your place, let, let's get our bearings just a little bit, get us caught up uh, where we are in this book. If you remember, Paul is building this really logical step-by-step step, kind of building this argument for, for us in this, in this text, and he's just kind of building his case step-by-step, step. and he starts with, with giving away his kind of main point, which is in chapter one, he says, the righteous shall live by faith, he just gives it away, and then he reminds us that, that God's right response to evil is his wrath. So he reminds us of this, and he, and he says that no one, not one of us, not one single one of us is, is righteous, and that means that all of us, every single one of us, um, are, are subject to God's wrath, because he's perfectly good all the time. His standards are good, and we're imperfect sinners. And then he reminds us that righteousness, it can't be attained by anything we do, by any of our works, because we all fall short. Righteousness can only be attained through Christ, who is perfectly righteous on our behalf. So Paul points us to faith, to believing in in him. Um, Then we get to chapter four. In chapter four, what chapter four does is it reminds us this is not a new thing. This is not like a whoa out of nowhere thing. This is this is not a new plan. This is not that new and New Testament plan. No, that Paul reminds us this is this is the plan like from the beginning. This is the plan. Abraham, Moses, David, all the Old Testament saints. They were saved not by what they did by their works or even their greatest intentions. They were saved because they believed in God. And their faith was counted to them as righteous righteousness. They, had, they were saved by grace through faith. And as Paul says, this was before their works, what we saw last week. And so, uh, the law and the works of the law, the, it, the law, it, it's, it's, Paul reminds them, it's not that it's evil, it's just you're not saved by it, okay? That's what Paul is, is reminding. And then one more thing that we saw last week in chapter four is that Paul reminds us that God doesn't need your fences. What we, mean, what, what we see here, what we mean by this is that all of the things that we do to kind of put the wall up and say, that is them, this is us, separate us. We deserve to be here and they don't. All of the man-made fences, Paul is very clear, your God wants nothing to do with them and they all fall flat and need to fall flat at the foot of the cross. And that's where we pick up now in verse 13. That was a very quick, very quick overview. It's like fire hydrant there, but it gets us started here cuz we're going to do some work in these these three verses. We're going to push in a uh, deep into them. So Paul starts in in verse 13 and he really kind of gives this clarifying statement to get us started. So so let's look here, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, the, the promise that God gave Abraham, the promise that God gave Abraham's offspring did not come to them through the law or through the keeping of the law. In fact, let's get technical here. You remember when God called Abraham? Bible drill time. Don't yell it, but if you know it, you can you know, pat yourself. Genesis, thir- or Genesis 12, you look at it that was before the law <laughs> that was before the 10 commandments that was before the torah that was even before circumcision that was before and this is when god called abraham and god promised abraham it was before any of that because god's promise didn't rest on abraham's good behavior god's promise didn't rest with him keeping the law, but it was by his faith and through that faith it was counted to him as righteousness again, as Paul says, before the law had even been given. And more than that, uh, let's just see this phrase, this phrase here, but this, this air of the world, that's just a uh, put that in your pocket. That's kind of a glimpse of where he's taking us here. But the promise that God made Abraham into his offspring did not have to do with the righteousness of Abraham or his offspring, but their faith in the God who made the promise. And this fact has not changed, even for us today. It has not changed. None of this has been changed or altered because God has not changed or has been altered. His promise has not changed or has been altered. So let's look at verse 14. Verse 14, let's keep going a little deeper here. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. Take that in, and let's let's kind of take this clause by clause for, that's because or because of this, if it is the adherence of the law. Um, Let me ask you, who is an adherent of the law? Well, at least two things have to be true. Uh, Number one, first, to be an adherent of the law means you had been given the law. To be an adherent of the law means you have to have the law to adhere to. In other words, you need to be Jewish, Sorry, Gentiles. Paul here speaks directly to the Jew Gentile divide. He's speaking directly to that here. And I want to, what I pointed out in the previous verse, air of the world, it's coming to play here. This is not a, a, a Jewish thing only, but it's a light to the nations, which again has always been the plan. Not new always been the plan. So the first thing is, if, if this was all about the adherence of the law, the first thing that means is it's only to those who had been given the law. Paul says, no. The, the second thing here is, is, it's not only those who have been given the law, but it's also those who keep it. To be an adherent of the law means you you keep it. So, it's not only the ones who have the law, it's the ones who are perfect in their keeping of the law. And Paul says, if it is the adherence of the law, meaning if it's only for those who have it, and if it's only for those who are perfect in keeping it, if it's only for them who are to be the heirs and receive the promises, if it's only them, Paul makes this huge statement here. Faith is null. And the promise is void. It all amounts to nothing. All of it amounts to nothing. Where there is no faith, there is no promise. It's a huge statement. It's a huge statement. Um, If we put all this together, what we really have here is Paul giving us this hypothetical if-then statement. He gives us this if-then statement. He says, hypothetically, if the promise were only given to those who have and keep the law, then the promise is void and, and, and it means nothing. If you bypass faith in the process, there is no promise. And why is that? Well, again, it's because our God has not changed. He has not changed. His standards have not changed. In fact, God even says it directly in Malachi 3, 6, I believe. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. He says it very clearly. God does not change. And and listen, I know, I know. We live in a culture who love to think that we can kind of redefine things as we see fit. And we, could, we can kind of reshape definitions and even define God so that he fits our definitions. In, in other words, we live in this culture who forgets that we're made in the image of God and uh, we're obsessed with making God into our image. I know that. I get this. But here's the deal. God is not up for redefinition. He does not change. He has not changed. He, he, he gave us... His word, who he is, what he is like, and how to know him. It does not, it does not change. God never changes. God's standard is perfect. He's never less than perfect, not even for a day. God is perfect and he will never change. And if if it were up to us to reach his standards, then we're doomed. If it were up to us to be faithful and and to keep the law perfectly, then we are doomed. Um, Our God is perfect in all his ways. I want you to think about this, just a little little fun that we can have this morning. Um, There are roughly, there's more than this. This is a conservative uh, number here. There are conservatively seven and a half billion human beings on planet Earth right now. So if you think about that, that's just it's crazy. There's seven, more than seven and a half billion human beings on the earth right now. And here's the cool thing. Not one of them is perfect. There's not one of them. What that means is there's not one parent who will come and say, no, 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 little Johnny, he is perfect in all his ways. Not one parent will do that. Why? Because it hasn't happened It has not happened. And all the parents in the room say, amen. There is not one sinless person. Not one. Not one apart from the God-man, Jesus Christ. There has never been. Apart from Christ throughout all of human history, all of human history, no matter the education, the culture, the nation, the wealth, the status, the health, no matter all of the systems, no matter, not one of us has been good. No, not one, in Paul's words. Not one. And that should tell us something. It should tell us what we already know about ourselves, that we have all sinned and fall short. That God does not change and we are all sinners and therefore we have this problem. And Paul says, if if the promise were dependent on you, then, then it's Whew, void. It's, it's void. No one could do it. God has not changed, neither has his promise. His promise is for salvation, and we need to hear this, for people from all nations, all tongues, all tribes, all peoples, by grace through faith alone. That's, that's the promise. That's... That's the promise. It has always been for the world and it has always been by faith alone. And the promise only comes, hear me, to those who trust the God who made the promise. Another way to say this is so our God, he is the promise maker and he is the promise keeper. If you ask me, what is faith? What is faith? What is our part in this? Well, it's simple. Our part is faith, and faith is trusting the promise maker to be the promise keeper. That's faith. Faith is us trusting the one who made the promise to keep the promise. No matter what, trusting. That is our part in this, and none of this has changed. And this rolls us in now to verse 15. And uh, I want to be real clear. This is an important verse because this verse, it can cause some problems. Um, it would be possible for me, it would be possible for any preacher, it would be possible for you to get your Bible, open it up to, to Romans 4, verse 15, and preach a sermon that is absolutely heretical, You think, Pastor, this is the word of God. How can you say that? Yes, it is. And the word of God has a context. It is quite possible and quite dangerous to take this text out of its context. Um, You know what taking this verse out of its context gives us? It gives us a half-truth. And do you know another name for a half-truth? It's not true. It's a lie. It's not true. The most destructive heresies and cults, guess what? They didn't roll up into your neighborhood with a fully blown, full-faced lie. Most of them don't. What they do is they roll up with truths that are almost in half. And slowly but surely, we land in a territory we don't want to land in. It's important that this verse be taken, as with others, in context here. And uh, this is one of those verses, by the way, that we might be tempted to take in isolation. Um, I want you to think about it like this. I want you to pretend that I wrote a 15-page letter to my wife. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. But let's pretend that you got a hold of it and you open that letter to page three, paragraph two, sentence four, and you took nothing but that sentence, what are the chances that you could tell me what my letter was about? I mean, maybe, (laughs) probably not. In fact, you could take that sentence alone and and, uh, disconnect it from its context, you could probably make me say anything you wanted me to say at that point. The same is true for Paul's letter here in Romans. The same is true. This is why we preach the way we preach here, to take the whole counsel of God's word in context. So before we read this, um, here's what I want to do I want to introduce you to a bit of a pendulum swing. Um, And I think this is important because it'll help us, I think, kind of shape or give us some framework for what we're about to see in this text. um, And and kind of help us. So here's here's the reality. In so much of Romans, Paul is helping us grapple with the tension between law and grace. Salvation and the law, right? And there's this tension that Paul is helping us to try to to understand, and not only us as individuals, but he's helping a whole church to get on the same page and understand this. And, and so much of the, the New Testament is really dedicated to this. And, and so, what I'd like to do is, is, before we get into verse 15, I want to give us this framework of this possible pendulum swing. So, so let me see the first one here. So, over here, we have the dirty word, legalism legalism, I'm sure you've heard about this word here, but this is what we do and what we do not do. So, over here it swings and, and it becomes we can do this and, and we, we it's about us doing good so that we have a good day so that God likes us that day. that That's legalism. Um, and, and by the way, we love by and large, there's, there's a it's no coincidence that this has been in the people of God for so long, because we love it. We love to think that we've earned stuff, and if we're being honest, we love to think that we're a little bit more worthy than the dude next to us. And so legalism gives us the mechanisms to say that, right? Um, so that's legalism, as you can see by the word legal, it's all about the law, right? Pendulum over here. So let's swing that pendulum over to this side. I I don't want to, uh, you know, make you feel bad, but I'd love to hear someone. I had my boys try to say this word on the ride over here. But antinomianism. Got it? Antinomianism is, is a big fancy word that comes from two words. Anti, Greek word meaning against, and namas, Greek word meaning law. Very simple. Against the law. Everything legalism is, this isn't. All right, so, so what this is is this is the belief over here that says we are saved by grace, and so it doesn't matter what you do at all. Like, go do your thing. It does not matter because it, God is going to forgive you anyway and give you heaven anyway because Jesus did it. It's all about grace, so who cares what you do? It's over here. Uh, there's another name for this. Uh, it's been called easy believism, where you can just say, say the prayer, that way you know, and then go do your thing. Or uh, it's also, one of my favorite terms for this is the fire insurance plan, which is where you, you know, say that prayer, get the fire insurance, so that you know you're not gonna burn later, but then you can live the way you want now, and it doesn't matter, because God is good, you know, you've heard this. Um, Here's the reality, both of these pendulum swings, Uh, both of these pendulum swings might have great proof texts. What I mean by that is, for the legalist, you can probably find a a select couple of verses that you can say, put it on the t-shirt, this is why I believe what I believe. Same over here. You put it on the t-shirt, say what you mean. But Here's the reality, though. Both of these, on either one of these swings, either one of them, they cannot stand against the full weight and witness of Scripture. Both sides will crumble. Both sides will fall. They might have their proof text, but against the full weight, they will fall. So as we approach our, our, our text, I, I want to ask, I want to push this a little bit. Let's say that you have someone in your life who's one of these extremes, Let's say um, you have someone in your life. um, Let's say you have an antinomian friend. Let's go here first. How would you disciple them? What would you say to them? What message would you give to them? You have someone here that says, it's all grace, who cares what you do? How would you disciple them? Maybe you take them to James. Say, you know, faith without works is dead. Right? It's a great one. Maybe you would um, take them to the words of Jesus. That's always, you know, the trump card there. Jesus. Um, Where he says, hey, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. Maybe, um, Actually, maybe you need to hear the words of Paul just a few verses down the road from our text this morning. in in Romans 6.1, he says, what should we say then? Should we just keep sinning that grace may abound? And then he, he, he yells, by no means. I know he yells, it just, it, he yells it. By no means. Don't do that. See, if you have a friend here, that's the message they need to hear. That's how you disciple them. That's how you show them the full weight of Scripture. Now, let's pretend you have a legalist friend. Let's do the same exercise. How would you disciple them? How would you disciple them? Well, maybe they need to hear Jesus' words that says, Come to me, all who are broken, that I didn't come for those who don't need a doctor. I came for the sick and the broken. Maybe they need to hear the words of the gospel of John when Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes me has eternal life. Uh, That it's not about what you do or didn't do. Maybe, I love this one, take them to the thief on the cross. Like, that's a good one. There's a lot of places you can go. But they need to hear a message like that. Maybe they need to hear a message like Romans 4:15, our text today. Why is it important that we're doing this before we get into this? There's two truths here. We'll keep it in Romans, just for simplicity's sake. You can't have Romans 4:15 without having Romans six, one and two. You can't. It's the whole weight, the whole counsel of Scripture, and we got to keep God's word in context. But more than that, church, there there, there are going to be times when you need to be reminded of certain truths because your pendulum has swung. As your pendulum swings. And here's what we have in this church, in the ancient church of Rome. We have a pendulum that is swinging. So Paul, dealing with this group with a swinging pendulum problem, he speaks directly with love and and just speaks directly to this. That's our context. It's important we understand that as we roll in now to verse 15. Listen with me here. Paul says this, For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's unpack this together. What I'd like to kind of do is take it apart and then put it back together. Maybe you're one of those people who love to do that with things. You'll like this. Let's take it all apart. Let's put it all together. Here's, here's, let's start with what this does not say, okay? Um, Paul says, for the law brings wrath, right? That's what it says. Here's what it does not say. Where there's no law, there's no wrath, does not say that. In other words, it does not say, hey, if you don't want wrath, just stay away from the law. Does not say that. It does not say, hey, if you, do, if you don't have the law, you don't have wrath. Does not say that. Also, this verse says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. It does not say, where there is no law, there is no Sin. It does not say, look, if you don't have the law, you don't sin. It's wonderful. It's like a little, it's a glitch in the system. Stay away from the law. Don't worry about sin, right? It does not say that. This verse does not call us to what I think of is the ignorance is bliss Christianity. Where, wow, if we can just stay on the simple things, we won't even have to worry about all that condemnation for those other people Right, um, Paul in fact has already laid this out. If you think about in the first part of Romans one eighteen, he says, um, "For the wrath of God it was revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness." So, it, 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 who suppresses the truth? If you remember that that verse, who? Um, God, through his invisible attributes, have been able to be seen from the beginning through all that is created. And then what has Paul said? So they are without excuse. So if you're hoping that not having the law will be the excuse, if you're hoping that ignorance, it could be your excuse, Paul says, eh, no. It's not an excuse. Ignorance is not the way to avoid God's wrath for sin, Jesus's, not ignorance, the cross. It's not that knowledge of the law earns you wrath and ignorance of it keeps you from it, right? It, it's not it. Now, you might be able to say, well, pastor, isn't there some higher standard here? Like, like, as Jesus even says, to whom much is given, much is required. So don't give me much and much is not required, right? You, you could say that, um, Here's the, here's the deal, though. Nowhere in Scripture does ignorance excuse you from God's wrath. As a pastor, I can't give you a proof text for that one. Now, it would be like you going to work tomorrow if you're leaving your home and going to work for the three of us that are at this point. Um, And let's just pretend that you don't know there's a school zone and you're booking it through a school zone at 75 miles an hour. And let's just pretend you get pulled over and the officer comes to your window and you just say, officer, I didn't know. Had no idea. Look, you might be being honest, but good luck with that. That, that won't hold up, and you know that. Ignorance is not an excuse, at least a valid one. It might be a, an excuse. It's not a valid one. More than that, um, let's press in a little bit on this, too. The word transgression here is not the word sin. It's not. Um, transgression is a legal word. It's a very technical word. Paul could have used sin. He didn't. He used transgression. And, and although it is, it is similar, there's a difference here from transgression and the word sin. Um, let me give you a quick example of, example of these to hopefully wrap our minds around this. So example number one, Diet. So, in this context, the Jewish people had dietary laws that their Gentile brothers and sisters did not have. Um, They, for example, were not to eat pork. Their Gentile friends could eat pork. For the Jewish brother or sister to eat pork was a transgression against the law for a gentile to eat pork it was not a transgression against the law paul says here but where there is no law there is no transgression in other words jewish brothers and sisters there is no transgression when your gentile brothers and sisters eat what you cannot eat that makes sense Don't judge them against the standards God has given you. That's the first example. That's an easy transgression example. Let me give you another example. Murder. Murder. Think back with me to Genesis 4. We read about Cain having a good old brotherly spat and actually murdering his brother Abel. And uh, Cain did this. Cain murdered before God wrote, thou shalt not murder right i mean it, it, he did it before the tablets were there and and so was that a valid excuse could cain stand before his holy god and say god you didn't write it down yet i can't be held accountable for that of course not why is that because sin goes against the heart of God. It, it destroys the sanctity of human life. It, it's just because there was no law here to transgress, it doesn't mean that he had not sinned against his God and his brother through taking the life of Abel. Hopefully that makes sense. Two examples to kind of see the, the nuances between these words. The reason I give you these Two examples is so that we can see that. The difference between sin and transgress. In so many cases, by the way, our actions are both of them. Right? They're both of them. Um, But the terms are slightly different. And here in our context, what were the Romans thinking about? If you go back to our pendulum, they were thinking about the law. And so Paul uses this highly legal word here, transgression, to make sense to them here. Now, let's take all the pieces, let's put them back together. And to do that, I'm going to go back to an analogy that we already started. I'm going to pick up on it. I use the speeding analogy. And we're going to push forward with it because I think it's good bear with me Um, what is speeding better question by the way don't answer this out loud you might get in trouble Um, when is speeding speeding at what point speeding speeding let's push this more is speeding a transgression. I think this one's a pretty easy one. Yes, right? Um, give me my, my, my lovely, yeah, I made this for us so we can really put ourselves in this spot. This was given, and this is a law. It's a law. It's a speed limit, and by speed, Speeding, we are breaking the speed limit. That's breaking the law. That's the definition of transgression, okay? So transgression, that one's an easy one. Is speeding a sin? Again, don't answer this out loud. Um, I'm gonna make some of you mad at me. I know I'm gonna get emails about this. Uh, That's okay. For the sake of this, I'm gonna propose it is. It's a sin. Why would I say that? Well, because Romans 13.1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Some of you are looking for ways to debate me right now, but I have the mic, so no, I'm joking. <laughs> this will make sense. Follow me. In a sense, when you're speeding, you are disregarding and disobeying the government officials. And as you disregard and disobey the governing officials, you are disregarding and disobeying the God who placed you under them. Sin. Piper, John Piper, if you read any of Piper, he has this unique way of saying things that are often just, way above me, and I love it. He says "He says this, going over the speed limit is an exaltation of your preference over the law. Thank you, Piper. So in speeding, you're, you're disregarding the leaders that God has blessed you with, and I don't say blessed lightly. If you've ever traveled, by the way, to a, a, a country that does not have enforced speeding or traffic rules, it is chaos. I could never, ever, ever drive in Ethiopia, ever. It's a blessing. Law and order is a blessing. Um, so, coming back to our, is, is, is sin, or is uh, speeding a transgression? Yes, is speeding sinful? Yes. Well, wait, 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 Pastor. What if my wife is pregnant? I mean, she's about, it's go time. Are you telling me that it is sinful for me to book it? I'm not hurting anyone. I'm getting my wife to the hospital. Are you telling me that is, that is sin? Is that a transgression? Is that sinful? What speed would you go in that situation if you saw that sign? Okay, well, pastor, pastor, what if it's an accidental thing? Like, it's like, I'm thinking about how much I love the gospel, and I push my foot down just too hard, and I'm, I'm going, I wander up to, you know, 80. Is that, is that a sin? I mean, come on, pastor, that's, that's legalistic, isn't it? What about, pastor, pastor, there's this five-mile-an-hour grace window, right? I've heard a lot about this, like it's a real thing, um, But if you go 71, 72, 73, 74, 75, you're good. You have the permission to break the law a little bit. So you're telling me that it's a sin to go three miles an hour over? Two, one, are you telling me 71 miles an hour is a sin, Pastor? I could ask more. You could ask more. You hear what's happening, though? All of a sudden, all these gray areas start bubbling up, popping up. Antinomians love gray. They don't care. All good. Yay. Legalists hate gray. Legalists exist to sniff out grays and turn them black or white. Don't like grace. So let's pretend here that you are the legalist. What would you do if you saw this sign? Well, what you would do is you would say, you know what we need? We need a barrier so that we don't even get close to breaking this. So what we need, 65 is my speed limit. So that way if I accidentally wander up, I still I'm I'm good. All right. So 65. We're not even gonna get close to breaking the law because that's how awesome we are. And we're gonna go 65. That's our that's our speed limit. And when you do this, you feel kind of good. You feel good about yourself. You're like, I'm a good citizen, I'm a safe driver. I still get places on time. Imagine that. Like, I mean, I feel good. I'm a good citizen when I do this. 65, boom. That's all good. That's all great until you ride with a friend somewhere. And you're sitting in the passenger seat. And this is what the road sign says. But you see on the dash, it's a 71, 3, 76. And all of a sudden, you're sweating. You're boiling up. You're going, Hurr! like, Stop it. Stop doing the Some of this might be too close to home. This might be your marriage that I'm painting the picture of right now. Um, I get that. Um, how many know that that would be a fun car ride? How many have been in that car ride? And Now, you might be hearing all this and saying, Pastor, this is still ridiculous. This is still ridiculous. This analogy is crazy. But follow me because I have a, I have a purpose for giving this analogy bigger than just making you mad. Um, as the church came together after Christ ascended, and as the, the people came together, in some sense, it was almost like we were all taken and put in the same van going down the road. And some of us are yelling, go faster! Like, Come on. There's a a five mile an hour at least grace period here. At least hit 75. Some of that, some some of you are yelling that. Others are yelling, no, go 70. It says 70. 70. I'm an old man driver, always have been. I'm rocking 60 and I'm just thumbs up. All right. But so I'll stay out of this. Some of you, though, are yelling, 75, go 80! Like, there's no one on the road, there's no cops, we're not hurting anyone, we have places to be and people to see. Go 80! 85, if no one's around. While you, still being the strict legalist that you are, are saying, no, 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 65, we need to protect this band from wandering over the speed limit. 70, or 65. Um, Backseat drivers are the worst. Can we all agree to that? If you heard nothing else, you're going to walk away from this sermon saying backseat drivers are the worst. Um, But do you see what was happening in this ancient church? Do you see what was happening in this ancient church? See, the Jews and the Gentiles were now coming together in the same van trying to figure out the speed limit to go. The Jewish people here, for the sake of the analogy, are calling out, go 65, while the Gentiles are saying, no, 70 will do just fine. And we might even squeak up to 73. Now, we're gonna see in other places, by the way, just as we zoom out, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians, you would see that the Gentiles are also guilty of just saying, let's just go 97, right? So, so balance this here. Um, But here in this text, this is what we're seeing. And the struggle here that we're seeing is what does it mean for the people of God to be one in Jesus? To be one body in Christ. What does that look like? What does that mean to live united in Christ? So much, by the way, of the New Testament was written to speak directly to that. How do these two come together and drive in the same van? how do we live together in all of our diversity? And here Paul speaks to the Jewish people directly, firmly, graciously, lovingly. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgressions. To the Jewish brothers and sisters, Paul is speaking directly to them, saying legalism is not the answer. It is not the answer. Legalism does not lead to the promise. It does not lead, it leads to death. It leads to wrath. Paul is clear. And I'm just gonna add here because of context. Remember, context is important. Paul's not gonna leave us here because later on, he's, he's going, just a few verses later, chapter six, antinomianism, that's not the answer either. That doesn't lead you to the promise. That leads you to death. That leads to death wrath and this is where church we get to return right where we started kind of full circle here because God does not change and God's promise does not change God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring that was to be received by Abraham and his offspring in faith that plan has not changed because our God has not changed it is and has always been and will forever be about trusting the promise maker to be the promise keeper. Has not changed. And I'll say this, just like last week, I know our struggle today is, is probably not Jewish laws and Gentile customs. That's probably not our, our struggle um, But our struggle is so very, very similar. Because at the heart of it, it is the same struggle. For some of you, you can relate well, very well, to the Jewish people, the legalists, in our example. You love laws, you gravitate toward works-based religion, you find this desire in yourself to, to... measure yourself up against how you did that day. And you love knowing that if I perform at this level, then God is pleased with me. This is the same struggle. You may be here and if you're honest, you find the temptation in yourself to not only judge yourself that way, but others that way. You're tempted to believe that God is more or less for you based on how good or bad you're currently doing. For some, that might be you. For, I would wager, I would say a good number of us, that's, that's a temptation we face. For some of you, though, it's not that. For some of you, it's, you can relate much better better to the Gentile folks in this church, and maybe you've even come through some legalism. Maybe you were born into it. Maybe you've been in some communities that were kind of marked by it, and you are like, no, thank you. No, I'm done. It's death over there. I know that. I don't want to go back. Some of you, that might be you, and you might even feel this swing in yourself, to throw away all of those old ways and laws and just throw them out. It's about grace. Let's talk about grace, love, and peace. Let's not talk about this obedience, Lord, you know, take up your cross, commands, commission. Don't talk about that. It's all about grace. Some of you might feel your pendulum swinging your heart swinging that way and to both of us honestly the call this morning is the same it's to repent if or to the legalist rather if you're in the room or watching this or listening to this the call is to lay down our pride and self-sufficiency and to lay down the burden that you've placed on yourself and the burden you've placed on others, if you're a parent, the burden you placed on your kids. to lay that down. And, and as Scripture says, to come to Christ, whose yoke is easy and burden is light." to repent. To the other side, to the antinomian here in this room, watching this, listening to this, the calls to lay down your rebellion. your lone ranger rebellion or apathy to lay down the flippant religious assent that jesus i'll see you when i get there until that until then would you leave me alone Calls to take up your cross, as Jesus says, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to deny yourself daily and to repent. Where are you this morning? On that pendulum. Where are you? If we're gonna forgive each other, if we're gonna drive in that same van together. We're gonna have any hope of that. We need to confess together and repent together and come to Christ to confess and to repent, not just solo, but together for the ways that we have done this.